Hello, everyone. Hello, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to the latest Hot Topics podcast, our first for 2020. Happy New Year. So it is Friday, the 17th of January, 2020. My name is Neil Tucker. I'll be taking you through the next 15 to 20 minutes or so on the latest news and research relevant to us in primary care. And as ever, we'll be having a look at the latest in future medicine as well. I hope you managed to get a bit of time to relax over the Christmas and New Year period. I managed to get some time off of work, which was quite nice. Went away with the family, came back on uh, on New Year's Eve evening, exhausted, got the kids to bed. Myself and my wife crashed out at 10.30. We didn't manage to stay up till midnight. I was rudely awoken by the sound of fireworks and people enjoying themselves just as New Year's happened. I don't know what the world is coming to. Anyway, it all feels like a distant memory now. So what is the news from the last few weeks? Well, of course, one of the biggest stories over the whole Christmas period is not directly relevant to us here in the UK in primary care, but it was to do with the terrible bushfires in Australia. Now, I've worked in Australia for a year as a medic. I've been out there with a Hot Topics course. Um, I've still got friends out there as well. So um, my heart goes out to them. And, you know, when you see the pictures, some of it looks absolutely terrifying. The just sheer scale of devastation is absolutely amazing. And you've seen the pictures, of course, of places like Sydney with this perpetual haze of smoke over them. So it's quite timely that the BMJ in the last month have published two articles on the effects that particulate matter in the air, so causing air pollution, has on people's health. The latest paper in the BMJ, which looks at a Chinese population, and of course that's a particularly important issue for the Chinese population. I remember we went out and did a Hot Topics course in Hong Kong a few years ago, and we were talking about all the normal things that we talk about in the on the course on the UK, but there was a big interest in the health effects of air pollution there, and it seemed a little, a little bit alien to us because although that's of some concern in the UK compared with some of the many, many smog-ridden cities that they have in China, it's, you know, what we deal with is absolutely minuscule. Over there, it's got a huge, huge public health impact. And this research really confirming what I think we've already known in the past, that if you get exposed to lots of air pollution, people are less well. And it's not just respiratory diseases. There's a, an increase in cardiac disease as well. And some of that will even be a, acute. So short-term exposure can drive um, acute illness, so acute heart attacks and stroke and the like. Along with the fires burning in Australia, along with the news in the last few days that the last decade was confirmed to the hottest ever on record, along with our knowledge about global warming and humans' impacts on that, then this is a further strong indication as to why we need to really push governments to clean up their acts. Pollution really does affect the health of our patients. Also in the news this week, many GPs were surprised to find out that the RCGP was hosting a conference at their headquarters for a major company in the oil and gas industry, which seemed to be somewhat at odds at the RCGP stance of having declared a climate emergency. While it may seem a bit of an error in judgment to have ever booked this conference in the first place, to their credit, the RCGP have actually cancelled the conference and acknowledged that uh, this is not in keeping with their ethos and indeed not in keeping with the ethos of, I think, many of the many GPs around the, the country and the world now who really do have their, 
their patients' best interests at heart when they want to try and tackle climate change and pollution. And this all ties in with an interesting article in the BMJ this week as well. One of their 60-second articles entitled London Throat. Not just exclusive to Londoners, this can affect anyone in urban areas and is described as the constant froggy feeling and string of coughs and colds that city dwellers endure. This made a lot of sense to me. Having come from a small town in Devon, when I was a kid and I used to go up to London, I couldn't help but notice that my snot always turned black. I would come back and for days just find I'd be picking out these nasty bogeys. To be fair, I go to London much more these days and I don't seem to notice it as much. Now, I can't believe that this is because my nose has become a less efficient filter, especially given the amount of nasal hair I I seem to have these days. So presumably pollution levels have gone down in the last 20 years. But of course, we all know that there's still a lot of work to be done. Now, speaking of burning, the other big news, of course, is PCNs which have been in the news for all the wrong reasons in the past week due to the draft proposals for 2020. Now, if you've taken the time to read the the Bucks, Burks and Oxen LMC's response to uh, the proposed recommendations, then you're probably going to be holding your head in dismay. It is hard to see how they are workable in the current form. It's hard to see how practices will be able to afford the extra staff that's being proposed. And I think simply the the rate of pace of change that's being forced upon practices is just is just not sensible. So hopefully things will change. We're between a bit of a rock and a hard place because on the one hand, we could just absolutely refuse to engage with the process. But then I have no doubt that the funding will simply go to somewhere else, be that the the local hospital trusts or be that Virgin or some other private healthcare company. And that's not going to do general practice any favours either. So tricky times ahead. Now onto the research and a bit of good news first. Always oh, nice to have a bit of good news, isn't it? And this was a paper published in the BMJ a week ago. You might have seen this. This was a look at healthy lifestyle and life expectancy free from cancer, cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. So this was a prospective cohort study of around 30 to 35 years duration following up healthcare professionals. They were looking at lifestyle factors, specifically focusing on five low risk lifestyle factors. So never smoking, normal body mass index, moderate to vigorous physical activity, moderate alcohol intake and a higher quality diet. And they demonstrated that the difference in life expectancy free of these major diseases between those who had no low risk lifestyle factors and those who had the most low risk lifestyle factors for women was around 10 years and for men was around eight years. So if you're someone who's made a New Year's resolution to get healthy, to eat well, to reduce the booze, then this might be just the incentive you need to try and maintain that. Now, I don't make New Year's resolutions. I haven't for many years. I just end up failing them. My wife, each year for the last few years, has done sugar-free January and she dragged me along with her. This year, she crumbled within uh, 48 hours due to particularly stressful days in general practice and the need for biscuits. I, on the other hand, have been able to maintain this for pretty well for the last two weeks. I'm pretty proud of myself. The biggest incentive here is because of my wife complaining about my muffin top, which, apart from being slightly offensive to her and to me when I look in the mirror, is 
probably not that good for my health. So thank you, the BMJ. This is what I need to get me through. Now, speaking of my own personal problems, a few years ago, I had a few runs of AF. Uh, lasted a few days each time. It was pretty slow, so I wasn't feeling too bad with it. But it was a little bit disconcerting to be in an irregular rhythm for two or three days, then it would spontaneously flip back. I did eventually lose my nerve and get myself checked out by cardiology. They gave me a pat on the back and said, it's all fine. But there were clear triggers for me. So alcohol was a bad one and so was caffeine. I remember having some of the worst hangovers I've ever had in my life at university after drinking multiple Red Bulls and quadruple vodkas. And I realise now that the reason it was so awful, because not only did I feel sick, not only did I have a massive headache, I also had an irregularly beating heart. So I moderated my alcohol intake. I went caffeine free years ago. I haven't had an episode of AF for quite some time. And it's interesting that sometimes our personal experiences eventually get mirrored in the medical literature. This was a randomised control trial in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, looking at alcohol abstinence in drinkers with AF. So they recruited men and women who were drinking 10 or more standard drinks per week. Many of us would would argue that that doesn't seem like that much. Average age 62 years and they had to have a history of either paroxysmal or persistent AF. And they randomised 70 people into an abstinence group and 70 people into a control group where they just kept on doing whatever they wanted. And they found that rates of AF were 20% lower in the abstinence group. So 53% versus 73% in the control group. When I see a patient with AF, asking them about their alcohol intake and encouraging them to cut down is not one of the first things I think about in management. But this paper really highlights that that can make a big, big difference and maybe really limit the the need for so much medication. The next paper that caught my eye was another paper from, from the New England Journal of Medicine. And this was based around the premise that we know that inflammation drives a lot of the problems that our bodies experience, including the development of atherosclerosis and subsequent myocardial infarction and stroke and the, and the like. So the premise of this study is that if they could, re- if you can reduce the inflammation, we might reduce cardiovascular disease. And this has already been looked at in a number of studies. One of them uh, called the Cantos study involving a monoclonal antibody inhibiting interleukins, which showed some promise but really the improvements were in more minor areas like sort of improvements in non-fatal MIs and there was no improvement in death overall. So there was some promise there, but of course monoclonal antibody medications are ferociously expensive. So step in this new trial where they were looking at simple old colchicine. So could 0.5 milligrams of colchicine daily after a heart attack reduce the rate of further cardiovascular disease and death? So this was a double-blinded, placebo-controlled, randomised controlled trial, and it had almost 5,000 patients post-MI, half-given colchicine, half-given placebo. And the conclusion from the paper is that among patients with a recent myocardial infarction, colchicine at a dose of 0.5 milligrams daily led to a significantly lower risk of ischemic cardiovascular events than placebo. 
it sounds very promising. And I love the premise of this. So um, I remember when they started suggesting that simple aspirin could be a hugely benefit people in terms of cancer reduction and um, prevention of metastatic disease in those already with cancer. Uh, those trials are underway at the moment. Could Coltrazine do the same? And although their conclusions on the face of it sound promising, when you actually look into the detail, it doesn't look as good. So there was no significant improvements in the rates of death or myocardial infarction. The benefits that they saw were driven by lower incidence of angina and stroke. There was also a rise in the rate of pneumonia in the colchicine group and perhaps not unexpectedly in GI side effects as well. So while I would love this to be a simple magic cure for people after they've had a heart attack, this doesn't appear to be the case with colchicine. Now, for our in-depth review this week, we are going to have a look at flu and the role of antivirals in its treatment. And this was prompted firstly by an email I got from one of the listeners. So um, hi out there to Tig. Thanks for the email asking about the potential role of Tamiflu in treating influenza. And then a brand new paper on the role of Oseltamivir, which is just published in The Lancet. So I think it's fair to say that there seems to be little appetite in prescribing antivirals for flu treatment from primary care. And it made me think, what are the barriers? Why aren't we prescribing more? So I think there's a perceived ineffectiveness of these treatments. I think there's a lot of concern about side effects as well. And that's particularly true in a condition which for most people is a largely self-resolving illness. Maybe there's concerns about cost as well. And I wasn't aware of the NHS tariff, but it costs about £15 for 10 capsules. So in lower risk patients, you would be giving five days worth. In high risk patients, you would be giving 10 days worth and it's a capsule a day. And yet we have this national guidance, both from Public Health England and from NICE as well, that when there is circulating disease, we can use these medications to try and improve the disease burden, particularly for higher risk patients. This just doesn't seem to have translated into day-to-day -day routine general practice care. Now, I think it's say, fair to say that there may be some lack of trust in the data looking at antivirals. And that's largely because the data has been produced by the pharmaceutical companies trying to market their products. Even a paper that we covered in the Hot Topics course a few years ago, 2015, there was a, a Lancet paper. There was a systematic review of published and unpublished data, and that found some broadly positive, albeit modest, improvements from the use of antivirals. Um, but even that was funded by a foundation that was paid for by the manufacturers of antivirals. So it's good that this new Lancet paper is independent. It's been funded by the European Commission. And so it really helps us have more of an unbiased view as to whether antivirals really can make a difference. So this was a randomised control trial, a two-year study that uh, recruited over 3,000 participants from 15 European countries with a minimum age of one year, going all the way up to uh, very elderly adults and a broad range of patients of all ages. 
This was a pragmatic primary care-based study. So inclusion was simply in patients who had flu-like illness based around the clinician's judgment. So they didn't have to have lab-based confirmation to gain entry into the trial. About half of the group did go on and have PCR testing to see whether they did or didn't have actual influenza, but this didn't influence whether they were entered into the trial and given treatment or not. The primary endpoint was simply time to recovery, which is probably what's going to be the most important thing for most of our patients. The results show that on average, use of olcetamivir, which is uh, effectively Tamiflu, at least in the UK, did seem to reduce the time to resolution of flu-like illness by one day on average. So probably most of us would look at that and think, well, is that that meaningful? Does that make a, is that a big clinical difference for many of our patients? But it's worth having a look at the different subgroups because age does seem to matter here. So in younger patients under 12 with less severe symptoms and no comorbidities, they seem to get better pretty quickly, almost irrespective of the medication. It, on average, they improved 0.7 of a day faster than those taking placebo. However, in the over 65 category, those who had more severe illness, they had comor- uh, more comorbidities, they had a longer duration of illness, then actually there was a quite significant improvement. So they had a shorter illness by 3.2 days. And that's probably going to start becoming quite meaningful for people. Now, what about the side effects? And of course, we all know that these drugs are associated with nausea and vomiting. And there was an increased burden of that in the Ocetamivir group. However, it wasn't as much as I thought it would be. So There was an increase from 16% in the placebo group to 21% in the the antiviral group. So yeah, there's a a 1 in 20 increase of nausea and vomiting, but actually that's much less than I had previously assumed we would see with these drugs. Now, UK guidance suggests that patients need to start the medications within 48 hours of their symptoms occurring. And of course, we'll often miss that window because often patients, um, they won't present that early on. So we uh, we often might not prescribe because we're, we're outside of that license recommended window. However, interestingly, in the paper, they also found that there seemed to be benefits of using these medications even beyond that 48-hour window almost at any point during the illness. And that was particularly true for those who had the most severe illnesses. The theory being that they have still a high viral load burden and that the medications are actually much more likely to be effective in that group. So these data do challenge the idea that we should be restricted in the time frame at which we could potentially prescribe these medications. This paper has really challenged my preconceptions about antivirals in flu management. It certainly does suggest some positive data, especially for that elderly population with high, uh, who are at higher risk, who have comorbidities, without necessarily a really high side effect or complication burden. Now, already in my practice, I feel like the flu levels have been dropping. They were pretty high just before Christmas, and I haven't seen so many cases in the past couple of weeks. But if I do see one of these higher risk patients, I definitely might consider these medications now, whereas previously they were just off my radar. Now, finally, on to future medicine. And this week, the study that caught my eye was one on the microbiome. And this was a this was a systematic review of 70 previous studies that had linked complex conditions to genetic variants 
all to various aspects of people's microbiome. And what they wanted to try and work out was which was more of an important influencer, the microbiome or our personal genetics. They looked at a range of different conditions, including schizophrenia, Parkinson's, cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, asthma, obesity. They had 20 conditions they examined for. The fascinating finding was that 19 out of the 20 conditions that the team looked at, the microbiome was the more important indicator than genetics as to whether a person was likely to develop that condition with the exception of type 1 diabetes. I think this is absolutely fascinating. I'm a huge fan of the microbiome and trying to understand how it um, how it drives disease, how, how it influences the body, um, how it can be passed on among generations as well. It's a fascinating area. What, of course, we don't have at the moment is the data that suggests how we can influence the microbiome effectively to actually alter the outcomes of things. And that's going to be the really key point. Once we've got that information, that's going to open up a whole new branch of medicine. And we in general practice will be at the forefront of that. So I, I, I welcome that day should it ever come. For now, just keep eating that natural yogurt. So that's it for this podcast. We'll be back in three weeks time. I'm currently in the process of writing the new Hot Topics booklet along with Rob and Simon and the deadline's two weeks today. So the chance of me doing a podcast at the same time is pretty slim. So we'll be back in three weeks. In the meantime, uh, next week, maybe check out the mbmedical.com dashboards. We're just adding a tracker function to the, the dashboard so that when you're reading the booklets online, then it's going to record the time. You'll be able to then download that as a PDF, as an Excel file, as whatever you need for your appraisals. In the meantime, don't work any harder than you need to, and we'll see you in three weeks. Take care.